0: In the name of Jesus, Amen. Dear Saints, today we consider both the temptation of our Lord and also the confirmation of Mia goodwill. So, and I'll take these things up in order. So, first we'll begin with the temptation of our Lord. The Gospel lesson says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness. To be tempted by the devil. That means that this temptation wasn't random or by chance or just an opportunity that the devil took a hold of. It was intended. This suffering was intended by the Father. It was God who sent Jesus there to suffer. To hunger and to thirst and to be tempted by the devil. Now the question is why? Why would the father who loves his son cast him out into the wilderness like this? Well, to understand this and to understand why, you had to have paid attention to and remember a sermon that I preached about nine weeks ago. (laughs) Um, It was the second Sunday of the year on the baptism of our Lord. The The title of the sermon was, Why Was Jesus Baptized? And we saw that the reason Jesus was baptized on that Sunday was not to take away sin from himself because he had no sin but he was baptized to take on sin to himself the sin of the world to, to that it would be placed upon him so that there Christ in his baptism would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world who bears the sin of the world that he takes the place of sinners and is our substitute Now, that's the reason Jesus is thrown out into the wilderness like this. Because he goes as our substitute. If Jesus is going to take our place on the cross, then he needs to be fully human, and he also needs to be without sin. He has to hunger and thirst, but never once doubt that the Father will provide what he needs for this body and life. He has to be despised and rejected by men and never once despise or reject man. He has to suffer innocently the wrath of God against all sin and anger against him, but not have even an ounce of hatred or anger against the Father while he suffered. So if Jesus is to be the Savior of the world, he must do what no other creature, not even an angel from heaven could do, but only what God himself could do. Now, I used to think that the reason Jesus was thrown out into the wilderness was like it was some sort of test for Jesus uh, to see if Jesus could handle it. As if we're supposed to see that Christ is thrown out into the wilderness and then we're supposed to be uh, unsure of the outcome. But that's wrong. The reason God threw Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil wasn't to see if Jesus could handle it, but was to prove that he could. The point of Jesus' temptation is to give clear evidence that he was not only born without sin, but he was capable of remaining without sin. Now, I want to go deeper into this point, and I have in years past, and I want to, if you know this, then uh, uh, this is just going to bolster this down into your heart. When we talk about Jesus... It's not simply that Jesus did not sin. It's that he could not sin. He could not sin. He was incapable of sinning. He didn't have the potential to sin. Uh, And I preached about this at length two years ago. In theology, we call this the impeccability of Christ. And we get this from the Bible itself. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in the incarnation, the Son of God takes on flesh, but it's not a change in God because He remains God. The Bible says the Word became flesh, not the Word changed into flesh. So Jesus is fully God and fully man. Nothing changed. But if Jesus sinned, then that would be a substantial and essential change to God. He would go from being sinless to then sinful or perfect to imperfect. Even if he was, uh, cap- if, if he was incapable of sin and now makes himself capable of sin, then that's a change in God. And that, is, that change is not happening in his incarnation. We could say that he was perfect yesterday, uh, but he's not perfect today. Uh, that, but the scriptures say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So forever means that there's not a day when he can't be the same that he is now. So if God cannot sin and would not sin 10,000 years ago, then he will always be incapable of sin. Now, uh, even more, James chapter 1 verse 17 says that with God there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, there's not even the potential to change in this way. There's not even the potential to sin. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. It's not simply that he does not lie, but that he will not lie. He can't do it. God cannot do evil. To do evil would be to renounce who he is, to go against his own will, but he can be sinned against, but he cannot sin. He can be lied to, but he cannot lie. He can endure the consequence of sin, but he cannot himself sin. Okay. All of that means that the devil has no claim over Jesus whatsoever, even in the wilderness, even on the cross, even today. Now, th- this is the way that Jesus speaks in John 14. He says, The ruler of this world, the devil, Is coming, and he in no way has a hold on me. If Satan has no power over Jesus on Jesus' weakest and worst day, then Satan has no power over him on any day. And even when it comes to Jesus' death, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. All right. When people learn that Jesus couldn't sin, their next thought usually is what? Well, then it must have been easy then the temptation must have been very easy. What's the big deal? Why am I making a big deal of this temptation if Jesus was going to win anyway, if he couldn't fail? I know what temptation is like. Jesus has no idea what temptation is like. I'm the one who lives in, in the midst of sin and trouble, but he doesn't know that. He never sinned. So how's he going to help me? How does he know? That thought could not be more wrong. Uh, actually, the fact that Jesus couldn't sin means he understands temptation better than we who do sin. Uh, And I'm going to explain this with an analogy. Imagine that there's a a big hole, an abyss on the ground uh, that goes thousands and thousands of meters into the ground. And above that hole, there's this bar, like monkey bars or something. Uh, like you can do pull-ups on it or something like this, and hanging over. Now let's say that at the bottom of that abyss, uh, all the way down there, is, for example, the sin of lust. We'll say specifically, uh, it's the sin of watching pornography. We'll say that's the, that hitting the rock bottom there. Now imagine that the devil lines up three men to challenge them. And he tells them to hold on to that bar, right, hanging over that abyss Uh, And now imagine that he ties a uh, a belt around their waist that can hold up to 200 pounds or something. So that the the goal is, you see, that they're supposed to hold on to this bar above um, uh, above this abyss, and then that the devil will slowly add weight to them to increase the pressure. Okay, this is the analogy. I know it's ridiculous, but just go with it. Okay, so this is what's going on. Uh, so the devil goes up to the first guy and says, uh, as he's hung, hanging on, um, he adds 10 pounds of weight. Uh, and then he adds 20, and then 30, and then 40, and 50, and the guy is trembling. His arms are shaking and he's saying, look, I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to give up. And then after some time, he lets go because he can't hold on anymore. He falls down into the abyss and falls into the sin of lust or watching pornography, whatever it might be. Uh, Now he goes to the next guy and he's hanging on and then the devil starts to add some weight and this guy's holding on and he fights and he's uh, fighting this temptation and then the devil adds up to 70 pounds and 80 pounds and 90 pounds and the guy's trembling and sweating and his arms are burning uh, up to 100 pounds and then he finally lets go and he falls into the pit of lust and there he goes. And then there's a third guy. The devil does the same thing to him and he adds all the same weight and the guy begins to feel the pressure and he's adding more and more weight constantly. He's up to 100 pounds where the last guy fell. The devil adds more weight. He's up to 150. He's holding on for dear life. He looks down into the abyss and says, I won't give in. I won't let go. And the devil adds more weight, 170, 180, 190. And he cries out, Lord, help me. Finally, 200 pounds, He adds. And the belt breaks, the cord snaps, and the weight falls, and it's over, and the man held on the whole time. Now you tell me, which of these three men has the best understanding of the weight or that temptation? Which one knows the full weight of desire? Is it the one who gave up at 50 pounds and gave in or the one who gave in at a hundred pounds or the one who withstood it all and held up all of it? And the answer is the last one. He knows the full weight of temptation. He feels all of the pressure. And my point is this, that you cannot understand the full weight of temptation by giving into temptation. You can only know the full weight of temptation by resisting temptation, by trying to fight against it. And Jesus knows the full weight of temptation because he never once gave into it. He felt the entire pressure of that temptation. Now, we so often give up in the midst of temptation, even when it's just beginning. We have no idea what, the, what it is to be fully tempted as Jesus was. Uh, we, don't, we can't endure even the small attacks of the devil. Hebrews 12, 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But Jesus has. And he has resisted temptation even in, unto death. And this is why Hebrews 4 says this, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. There's not one temptation that you can go through in this life that Jesus Himself did not go through and feel the full weight of it. And this is why the Bible even records the temptation of Jesus at all to begin with. The Holy Spirit caused these words to be written so that you would have certainty and confidence that you have a Savior who cannot fail. You have a savior who cannot fail you, who cannot disappoint you or let you down. You see Jesus at his weakest point after fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the most extreme uh, force and weight of temptation upon him. The best attack that the devil has. And Jesus doesn't waver or bend for a second. He withstands it. That that should show you that Jesus is the sure and solid rock of your salvation. That he not only resisted the temptation to sin, but he resisted the temptation to give up on you. The temptation to not be your savior. The temptation to leave you in your sin. So you have a savior who didn't, who cannot and will not fail or put you to shame. Okay, that's the first part. Uh, This is the second part of the sermon. And it's on the confirmation and how it is connected to that, to what Jesus did. The devil couldn't get Jesus to turn from you. So the devil will try to get you to turn from Jesus. And the way you defeat the attacks of the devil is not by relying upon yourself or your willpower or your strength or your reason Not to rely upon yourself who fails often, but to rely upon Christ who does not fail, who cannot fail. And you do this by clinging to his word alone. And that is how you have Jesus with you is in his word. John 14 says, Jesus himself says, if anyone loves me, he will hold fast and treasure my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That when you have Jesus' word, you have him. Now, this is why we have so many services and so much preaching and teaching and Bible studies in the church. It's so that you learn doctrine, that you learn the word of God, so that you grow in the knowledge of God's word. This is why we bring our kids to church each Sunday. And we put them in Sunday school and we we take them to Bible study and we put them in confirmation class. We have them memorize and learn the catechism by heart. They take tests and exams, all these things. It's so that Jesus would be with them. So that he would be with them their whole life. In fact, so often we treat our own confirmations like a graduation that we've uh, uh, received all we need to learn. And we just need to move on now. And we're not going to study. We just toss the catechism under the bed, throw it under the drawer, whatever it might be. But the truth is that your confirmation, this teaching is only the beginning. Each one of you, each one of you in this church ought to have a Bible, a hymnal, the Lutheran hymnal, and the small catechism in your home. At the very least, those three books. If you have no other books, then you have those. In fact, it's not even enough that you simply have those things, have the Bible and theology books in your home. Because when the devil comes, the paper of the Bible won't save you. The book won't save you. The words in it will. So it's not enough to simply have the Bible in your home. You have to have it in your heart. And it's the knowledge of the truth that fortifies and strengthens you against the devil. And it is through this word that God confirms you. That is, he makes you stronger. He strengthens you for the fight. He strengthens your weary heart through his forgiveness. And he gives you confidence that everything Jesus did is for you. So for for all of you, and especially for Mia today, you need as Christians to be strong and constant. You need to be firm in the word because the days are coming when the devil will tempt you to turn away from Jesus. He will use peer pressure or friends or family or TV or books or websites or whatever you can throw in your way to get you to doubt Jesus, to get you to love this world more than you love him. And when the devil comes and asks you these these very words about the doctrine that you hold dear in your heart, when the devil says, did God really say that? Did he really say that baptism saves you? Did he really say that this is my body and my blood? Did he really say that you're saved by grace through faith alone and not by works? Then you respond by saying it is written. You go back to the words of scripture. In fact, that is all it takes. If you wanna be a Lutheran, that's all it takes to be a Lutheran. You learn to say it is written. You find out what the Bible says, and you point to that, and you say, it is written. That is then my theology. That is my doctrine. In fact, Mia, I remember the very moment I realized that you were a Lutheran. (laughs) Um, We were in class, and I asked you, so Mia, why is the Lord's Supper the very body and blood of Christ? Why is it not just a memory of Him? Why is it that that He's not just in our minds, or in our hearts, or just with us spiritually spiritually? Um, And I had all of these arguments and philosophies and explanations in mind. uh, The authority of Christ, the omnipotence of God, the two natures of Christ, the communication of attributes, so on and so forth. And then uh, Mia responds by saying, uh, because that's what Jesus said. (laughs) That was her answer. Why is this the body and blood of Christ? Because that's what he said, (laughs) pastor. Right? Don't you get this? Uh, And that's when I was convinced she is a Lutheran. Um, as Lutherans, we do have good arguments for the Lord's Supper. We can use reason, we can use good arguments to present it, and and the, the students know this, and you all know this. But the reason we believe that Christ is truly present in the Lord's Supper is not because of philosophical teaching or presupposition or reasoning. The reason we believe it is because Christ said so. He said, this is my body which is given for you. It is written... That is the word of God that cannot fail. Now, before I close, I want you to hear the words of your dear brother Martin Luther, who spoke about the Lord's Supper and all of the word of God in the same way. But in this instance, the Lord's Supper, uh, in the same way that Mia did, in the same way that all Lutherans do. In his catechism, he writes this. He said, with this word of God, you can strengthen your conscience and declare. Let a hundred thousand devils with all the fanatics come forward and say, how can bread and wine be Christ's body and blood? And still I know that all the spirits and scholars in this world put together have less wisdom than the divine majesty has in his littlest finger. Here is Christ's word. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink of this, all of you. This is the New Testament in my blood. Here we shall take our stand and see who dares to instruct Christ and alter what he has spoken. It is true indeed that if you take the word away from the bread and the wine or view them apart from the word, you have nothing but ordinary bread and wine. But if the word remains... As is right and necessary, then by virtue of the word, the body and blood are truly the body, the the bread and wine are truly the body and blood of Christ. For as Christ's lips speak and say, so it is. He cannot lie or deceive. Dear saints, and especially dear Mia, you have Jesus' word. And so you have him. In his word, you have all he accomplished and promised. You have the forgiveness of all of your sins. You have life and salvation. Your baptism does indeed save you, as it is written in 1 Peter 3. You are indeed saved by grace through faith alone, not by works, as it is written in Ephesians chapter 2. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, as it is written. In Romans 10. This is the body and blood of Christ given for the forgiveness of your sins as Christ himself said as it is written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul. And after you have lived this life and God has determined that your days are full, when you breathe your last, Jesus will then wipe away every tear from your eye as it is written in God's holy word. Your strife will be ended and your cares will be gone. And you will have the crown of salvation that Jesus won for you long ago. All of this as it is written. And Mia and all of you uh, here today at Zion, may God strengthen you in this brief life of labor as you fight. Remember that the victory is already won. No matter what you endure in life, no matter how many times you fall and fail, no matter what sin you fall into, don't you ever despair or lose hope because you have a Savior who cannot fail, a Savior who will not turn away from you, whose word can not be broken. He's forgiven all of your sins on his dear cross, and you're his forever. Amen.